0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Unorthodoxy Podcast. I'm Duncan Rayburn, and I'm back with more on spiral dynamics. One thing I want to note right up front is my observation that often, although not always, when people transition from one mode of consciousness to another, what they'll quickly point out is that this new form of consciousness that they have makes more rational sense to them, as is the case when, say, an atheist who has arrived at something like an orange consciousness thinks that their atheism is more rational than the theism of their formerly blue level self or blue level consciousness. But on closer examination it becomes clear that it is not atheism per se that is so appealing but rather the specific form that it takes. We need to be able to pay attention to form more than content in a way. And on even closer examination, as many of us I think can attest, it may turn out to be more sensible to look at what form of faith was rejected, what form of faith, not just, not just the content of it, because that will clue us into the nature of any particular shift of consciousness. So what I want to explore in this episode is, is Christianity as a kind of case study of spiral dynamics, um, where it started and how it progressed. But what I'm describing here is something that relates to Christianity can be observed in other faith systems or worldviews, so you can have a look into that in your own time if you're interested. I thought it would be a good idea to get to a much more concrete example of how the spiral plays out in the history of Christianity, starting with the narrative that we find in the Bible and then moving into some, some later history beyond the Bible. Part of why I think this is helpful is that many of us will end up looking at this narrative only in terms of the, the place in the spiral that we happen to be occupying at any given time, and this means that sometimes we will judge what we find wrongly, we'll misunderstand what it's trying to get at or, or how different people have experienced things at different times and in different places. Christianity I think offers us a really fantastic clue into the development of consciousness over a large span of time. Having a sense of the spiral can also help us to understand how we individually grow through various stages of faith. The fundamental idea here is that you will evolve and change in keeping with the world you inhabit, which is undergoing its own changes, and there is no use in worrying about any of that. In all likelihood, it's exactly what you need. You need to find some kind of resonance between yourself and the world. and without some kind of resonance between yourself and the world you're in, you will feel homeless and lost much more than you really need to feel. With spiral dynamics as a tool, at least some of the usual worry about the various spiritual and existential transitions should go away, even if it happens to be a worry about someone else who is going through some changes, because that does happen sometimes. What is obvious is that all of the different kinds of consciousness described by the spiral are operating in the world all the time, often in our immediate environments. We are likely to have people in our own families even that, that are going through different phases and, and a lot of misunderstandings can arise from this. What is not so obvious is that within ourselves we often have multiple aspects of the spiral at work sometimes simultaneously your job for instance may require you to operate in very bluish ways keeping up with the bureaucratic joneses say but you may more naturally if sort of those constraints of your workplace disappear you may more naturally operate in a more greenish space while you keep very purple level things like healing crystals and yoga mats for yourself when you get home or if you're a parent of a toddler You may find yourself entering red fairly easily to assert authority over your child or to operate as a kind of heroic model for your child. Although you will do this in a very controlled, bluish way and you will probably also feel a pang of bluish level guilt after doing this or in the midst of doing this. When you're tired, beige kicks in and you ignore the world and head for bed. Some of this will be very conscious. Most of it will happen unconsciously. Well, starting with its very deep roots in Jewish history and culture, Christianity has all of these and more consciousnesses in it too. And I think the mark of a healthy faith is that it can accommodate these different levels, at least insofar as it is actually necessary for keeping us in tune with the given environment. Or at the very least, there is a patience with being, an acceptance that we're on a journey and that mess will happen that we can and will change our minds and so on. If you happen to be part of a very different faith perspective than what I'm presenting here, at the very least I hope that what I say here can help to foster some kind of understanding rather than merely judgment. Also remember that just because a person has moved to a particular level of consciousness does not necessarily mean that they're better off uh, than someone below. King David may have had a very red level consciousness, but this does not mean that someone operating at green, for instance, is more spiritual or closer to God than David was. When it comes to the evolution of consciousness, a very fascinating thing can be noted in much of Protestant Christianity in particular. Many of the transitions in global consciousness, uh, following the different twists and turns of history, were in, kind of echoed in the Protestant tradition obviously um, starting prior to the Protestant Reformation and then sort of moving through it. Even the transition in many cultures towards a materialist atheism has been echoed uh, in so-called radical theology or religionless Christianity, which is a kind of belief in God without God, which is in a way it's like decaffeinated Christianity. This has been valuable in various ways, but it has also come with a cost, which is that people become entirely bound to the given temporal mode of consciousness at the expense of other possible modes of consciousness. In other words, people get stuck in what just happens to be convenient rather than, um, say, trying to pursue what is ultimately true. The stronger liturgical traditions have managed to create a space for people to develop within their world. but without necessarily losing touch with other more vital modes of consciousness. They've encouraged a progression through orange and green and so on without losing the foundational wisdom of blue, for instance. Part of why I think this can happen is because these more consciously liturgical traditions, the Catholic and Orthodox traditions, have focused more on form than on content. This is the vital thing, they've actually created space for different modes of consciousness to populate the content. Protestantism faces certain problems because it tends to be more focused on efficient causality, whereas the other streams in Christianity tend to pay more attention to formal causality, which grounds all other forms of cause and effect, uh, which I realize is me just going on a philosophical tangent. Let me stress again though, the fact that if you want to grow as a human being, all the different levels of the spiral need to be in place. You cannot get further if your foundation is weak. And in fact, if you try to build higher without having a strong foundation, what is very likely to result is a kind of total collapse, some some kind of reversion into an earlier stage of consciousness. So with all of this in mind, Let's get into Genesis, which is obviously the first book of the Bible. Right there in the Garden of Eden, we have evidence of the earliest state of human consciousness, or rather, unconsciousness. Everything starts in a kind of blur with humanity so connected to their own environment that they can't distinguish between themselves and the world. You get a sense of this undifferentiated consciousness when you see a child stub their toe and then you ask them where it hurts and the child will often point to the object that hurt them. So instead of pointing to their foot and say it hurts there they'll point to the object and say that's that's where the pain is. Um, Sometimes you and I will make the same error. If you stub your toe on a chair you might say stupid chair even though your rational mind knows that the chair isn't the main idiot in the room. So beige is very much there. If it wasn't, you wouldn't be able to grow at all. Well, the Genesis account has Adam and Eve inhabiting the world without a clear sense of their separateness from it. Eve happens to be the first to eat the fruit of the tree of consciousness, the fruit that allows them to differentiate between things, between good and evil. And of course, this has benefits in a way but also serious deficits. This in spiral dynamics terms is beige emerging into purple. Most of the early parts of Genesis are very purple and animistic. The understanding of causality or the actual structure of the universe here is not particularly well developed. An example of this emergence into purple is found in various Christian denominations around the world. Those um, snake handling churches in America are an example of this. In my own country, South Africa, we have lots of news stories in recent years about churches where congregants are encouraged to do very weird things like, and I'm sadly not kidding, lying underneath a blanket while a car drives over them or drinking bleach to purify them. All of this is to show the power of God apparently. Somehow the injuries from lying under the car weren't so bad, but really tragically, and quite predictably I suppose, the bleach drinking did kill a few people. Now the key thing here is, it's very easy to judge the snake handlers and the bleach drinkers according to something like a Spiral Dynamics Level 4 or 5 way of thinking, but these have nothing to do with the way that those churchgoers happen to be operating. And in any case, my theory is that prosperity gospel teaching, which is rampant all over the world, and is certainly a major feature of the South African landscape too, is an echo of this animistic thinking. Causality doesn't work in the way that blue or orange consciousness would understand it. It's more like what Jung called synchronicity or a-causality, you sacrifice to the gods and crops will grow. You give money to the church and you will get money from the world. The logic is clearly silly to those of us who have transcended to purple ways of thinking, but it, it isn't silly to those who are actually in it. So that's a sort of ramble on the beige to purple transition in the Bible and how you can actually find it in our age too. Also, in the book of Genesis, we have a man named Abraham who had many sons, many sons had father Abraham, and apparently I'm one of them and so are you. Abraham's story makes much more sense when you start to see him as someone who is living in a very purple world where people perform sacrifices to appease the gods because that's just how the world worked. If appeasing the gods meant sacrificing your firstborn child, then that's what you did. The world of purple is bathed in wonder and also a great deal of terror and Abraham knows this world very well. He sees everything as alive with mystical possibility. Keep in mind though that purple is a tribal consciousness and Abraham shows various signs of emerging from that consciousness. Keep in mind though that purple is a tribal consciousness and Abraham shows various signs of emerging from that consciousness. He is told by God to leave his tribe and to set off on his own which is a very clear sign of red beginning to show up, which we know most commonly in the form of teenage rebellion in our own world. There's a legend told about Abraham in a Midrash, not in the Bible, but which may have actually happened or may just be a legend. The story goes that Abraham's father, Terach, was an idol manufacturer. Once he had to travel, so he left Abraham to manage the shop. People would come in and ask to buy idols. Abraham would say, how old are you? And the person would say 50 or 60. And Abraham would then say, isn't it pathetic that a man of 60 wants to bow down to a one day old idol? The man would feel ashamed and leave. <laughs> this is Abraham asserting something like egotism, but, but it's a profound sense of wisdom. One time a woman came with a basket of bread. She said to Abraham, take this and offer it to the gods. Abraham gets up and he takes a hammer in his hand and he breaks all the idols to pieces and then puts the hammer in the hand of the biggest idol among them. When his father comes back and sees the broken idols, he is completely shocked. And he asks Abraham, who did this? So Abraham says very calmly to him, how can I hide anything from you? A woman came with a basket of bread and told me to offer it to them. I brought it in with them and each one said, I'm going to eat first. Then the biggest one got up and took the hammer and broke all the others to pieces. Abraham's father, Terach, is of course capable of seeing through this and he says to his son, what kind of trick are you trying to pull on me? Do idols have minds? Abraham then responds, listen to what your mouth is saying. They have no power at all. So why worship idols? Think of that story next time you read about St. Paul and the idols in the book of Acts. Chapter 19. The point is, Abraham demonstrates a shift in consciousness that says creation shouldn't be worshipped as it would be by animistic purple. Rather, worship the Creator. Even if you don't buy the idea, the shift in consciousness is quite remarkable. Abraham, who is straddling purple and red, becomes the father of a tribe that grows into an entire nation. The Exodus story continues this between space of purple and red, although with Moses, there are also signs of blue emerging from red, especially with Moses receiving the law. Although the people of Israel on the whole in the book of Exodus are still very much between purple and red, which is why they perceive the world as magical and alive. Moses is way ahead of his time in this regard and in some ways way ahead of our time too. There's a lot said about people grumbling in Exodus. Not enough water, not enough food, they're too tired. So you can see signs of red ego very much ruling the proverbial existential roost here. By the time we get to the books of Judges and Kings, the 12 tribes of Israel are moving towards being a fully-fledged warrior culture, predominantly red, although bear in mind that it is actually unlikely for any society to be completely comprised of only one kind of consciousness en masse. The whole world at this time was filled with warrior cultures, with a mindset of taking what was wanted, lots of conflict, a great deal of violence too. Compassion is not high on the list of tribal ideals here. Egocentrism is also fairly normal because life is harsh and the consciousness that helps people to be able to handle this harsh environment is going to need to be a fairly blunt instrument. You even get a sense of God being thought of as a warrior God at this stage. In places in the Bible, he is characterized as being a bit like any of the gods of other nations, who gives the people what they want. But there are also signs of something else emerging. God in the Bible is always a step ahead, at least a step ahead of his people, and usually more. He's pulling them forward into newer modes of consciousness that are necessary for coping with the world. When his people are between red and purple, God pulls them into blue. When they're stuck at blue, he keeps moving forward. It's a remarkable thing about the Bible, I think. God goes ahead. It's this idea, more or less, that getting stuck isn't the ideal. We need to be looking for ways to go forward. Although I'd add that we need to have some very clear sense of what forward looks like. You can aim at nothing, and if you do, you're going to get it. When Israel gets their first king, this is King Saul, we see a clear sign of blue emerging with greater clarity, but there's still a lot of red. It was a particularly blood-drenched period in Israel's history and in human history in general. In this red to blue phase, there is also a sense in which people are looking for a more established world. There's a lot of building going on, although the building tends to be of benefit to very few rather than to many. Although that said, the temple becomes a very big deal when Solomon shows up on the scene. Solomon reveals the strong trend in the life of Israel towards established law and order. But the surrounding nations are still very much in red and they invade a whole lot. Blue while being very organized sadly tends to lack the power to resist invading red troops and so blue frequently gets captured by red maybe in the end this did not amount to being a totally tragic thing. Blue can sometimes use the attacks of red, in a way the pressure from red, to transition to even higher levels of consciousness or at least a better way of being blue. The assumption of blue level thinking is that consequences follow poor ways of thinking and living and the prophets become mouthpieces for a higher level of consciousness indicating somewhat both to a higher level of blue and the promise of green. Arguably the prophets have adopted a green level consciousness or something between orange and green and translated it for the blue level consciousness of the rest of the tribe. The Bible has a lot of this. It's often a story of unique and artistically gifted individuals calling to others and telling them to take a giant leap forward. If you want to read a wonderful take on the prophets, there's very little to beat the great Abraham Joshua Heschel's book, The Prophets. He adopts a somewhat emotivist view of God and I don't think it makes complete metaphysical sense, but I think he gets to the heart of the prophets better than anyone else I've read on the subject. Anyway, from the prophets, we can take a leap forward to look at Jesus's arrival on the scene. Jesus is announced by the audible prophet John the Baptist, who operates in a very green way, complete with the recovery of some very purple elements like eating locusts and uh, dressing weirdly. But Jesus, well, Jesus is, to my mind, the first and greatest integral thinker humanity has ever seen and is ever likely to see, which is exactly what you would expect from God incarnate. He is somewhere way beyond turquoise, capable of operating... At various levels of consciousness and you can see the way that he adapts to his environment even in, in the stories about him um, so and this of course includes a very high level of awareness um, and and of course a union with God so he's able to transcend the the structures of his time bear in mind that Rome at this time at the time of Jesus was very blue Lots of communal structures like temples and palaces, aqueducts, public bath houses, and the like. Much of Judaism at this time was also still clinging to a kind of blue level consciousness with very strictly codified groups of blue minded people, Pharisees, Sadducees, Essenes, and the like. The guilt drenched, law drenched realm of the religious establishment of the time is strongly indicative of blue level consciousness. And sacrificial acts, also very clearly indicative of a blue level consciousness, are very important. These acts become ways to appease red and purple, but without resorting to strictly red and purple ways of thinking. When Jesus is crucified, his death is incredibly procedural in accordance with Roman law. So this is also an indication of blue being the the kind of predominant environment. Although you do start to notice a little bit of flexibility in this very blue world around notions of justice. Jesus is killed by the legal system rather than assassinated, as would have happened more easily in a a red world. When the crowd is asked prior to Jesus' crucifixion, who should be freed, Jesus or the tyrannical figure of Barabbas, the crowd has a kind of democratic power and they elect Jesus to be crucified. Still sticking with the Bible, we then come to the figure of Paul, who is often very easily misunderstood, at least in part, I think, because he represents a person who is going through significant changes in his own consciousness, including an incredibly striking conversion from blue to green, and then incredibly rapidly to yellow and then to turquoise, to which you may say, what about orange? This is this very interesting thing about the transition from blue to green. I've already mentioned it in the series, but just to keep us on the same track, I'll mention it again. Some spiral dynamics theorists argue that it is possible for, for blue to move either to orange or to green, or to move so rapidly through orange that it is possible to not even see any orange manifesting or somehow gets incorporated in that kind of uh, green-level consciousness. Green and orange are often simultaneous, and a leap ahead to yellow is arguably possible from either green or orange. So I think it's also important to recognize that, although some spiral dynamics thinkers will, will probably disagree with me here, I think it's important to recognize the possibility of leaping beyond the obvious linear structure of the spiral. Sometimes things leap forward and in the process they skip intermediate steps. You can get some sense of this in St. Paul's writings. Paul has moments of rather striking, almost pharisaic thinking and also rather striking flexibility and graciousness. Paul is a non-dual thinker, although I don't have time, unfortunately, to go into the details of why I think this is true. Paul's letters seem very tough and law-oriented in places But then he also has this remarkable openness in other places, which is to say, very briefly, that Paul makes room for various kinds of consciousness. This is exactly what you would expect from someone who is speaking to a whole range of people across uh, an entire empire, essentially. He is operating at multiple levels, often simultaneously, which is one of the profoundest signs of an inclusive mindset uh, that we have in, in any form of literature. If you scan the New Testament, uh, you will find various signs of different consciousnesses at play, which is actually what you should find in any area of history and life. I'm explaining this in a very linear way, as as is sort of typical of speech, it is a linear thing. But I, I do want to keep in mind that there are complications and layers and reversals and movements forward. There's a lot going on at any given time in history. If you look at the church today, globally, you will find all kinds of consciousness at play, such as what we have in different forms of Catholicism, for example, that are very purple and drenched with superstition, and other forms that are more yellow-turquoise, mystical and non-dual, and various kinds of institutional blue. In the charismatic or Pentecostal stream, which tends towards the communal colours of purple, blue, and green, there's a lot of magical thinking, hyper-institutionalization and also some more global thinking. It's a vast mix. And part of the point of this is it's possible for various consciousnesses to coexist. I think that's one of the, the greater and more beneficial functions of a an institution like the church. It can be there to contain various modes of, of awareness. But let's get back to the history of Christianity. On beyond Paul and beyond the New Testament, the Christian martyrs tend to operate at a very high concentration of heroic red with a serious dose of mystical purple. And as Constantine adopts Christianity, Christianity itself becomes very blue and in fact stays predominantly at blue until the late medieval period when the Reformation breaks out. And here we have signs in the Reformation that orange is starting to happen. Actually, whenever anyone starts to clash with a large institution, especially one they are a part of, you can be pretty sure that they're about to find themselves elevated to a new level of consciousness. Martin Luther was incredibly goal-orientated, very clear on his own desires, and his fight against the Catholic Church was not violent but was at the level of words. And this is very important. This is one of the signs that that it's orange we're dealing with, not a rebellious red. However, unfortunately, at the time of the Reformation, there's still a lot of degenerate red happening. And so while Luther is trying to pull the church forward, in a sense, he's also trying to offer some sort of corrective, which, you know, according to modes of thinking that are not always entirely good, but he's trying to offer these correctives when many of the people surrounding him are still stuck in a kind of red level thinking, and so there is also a lot of violence that breaks out. The Protestant tradition has inherited Luther's fervor for language but retains that high-level blue enthusiasm for evangelism and conversion. Missionaries going out to new places, new ways of formulating doctrine, etc., Orange is very competitive always, and you can see this starting to happen in the wake of the Reformation. This intensifies as we approach the 1700s as the Enlightenment starts to become the dominant global, well, Western model for thinking around and about the world. It is a highly individualistic age, and certainly this individualism is widely prevalent in the West today as i've kind of hinted in this series though this individualism i think orange is that that level when people really break away completely in a sense from from their traditional roots Uh, orange rebels very strongly against blue as i've said and this creates a very deep and troubling sense of de-worldedness and i think that's something that uh, the world is now trying to to cope with and and actually recover a sense of reworlding given the the deworlding that's happened at orange. So as you are likely to have already noticed, there's a lot of green emerging in the world today. This is that very all stories matter way of thinking that we start to find, especially in a lot of emergent Christianity, which looks like a, a mix between orange and green, because I think it is a mix between orange and green, Rob Bell's book, Love Wins, is arguably a very green book, and my copy of it is literally green. And as many of you will know, it is one that caused a huge theological ruckus in America a few years back, which is now being repeated with David Bentley Hart's fantastic book, That All Shall Be Saved. Even though Bell doesn't argue that there is no hell and that there is no need for conversion, many people on various theological fronts assumed that this is exactly what he was saying, and it got the very blue-orange John Piper, who I joke is the Pope of Protestantism, to excommunicate Bell from the evangelical community, if that's what it can be called. Apparently, while Catholic popes are not infallible, to Piper, Piper believes very wholeheartedly in his own Protestant papal infallibility. Having said all of this, there are signs already that yellow is also emerging. The rather astonishing rise of Jordan B. Peterson to fame in recent years is, much to the annoyance of Mean Greenies, a very yellow phenomenon. Peterson's voice is very clearly individualistic and clearly allows room for both faith and unfaith, clearly suggests that not all stories are equally valid, argues for hierarchies of competence but not dominance, and offers a weird blend of various types of thinking. He also recognizes and seems to be trying to remedy a deficit in Western culture with regard to purple and red. And so he's trying to refer to a lot of more healthy forms of purple and red in the forms of archetypes, biblical stories, and heroic narratives. This doesn't mean of course that he is without his flaws and certainly Peterson is not the epitome of yellow but it would be a mistake to think that his rise to fame in this very fraught time is not without some significance. When things resonate with people and you can see this uh, in in movies and, and in culture, it's good to pay attention because there's some sort of symbolic value to what's going on that may not be immediately obvious. Peterson's survivalism and his sense of global responsibility is a clear sign of uh, an integral consciousness. Of course, many thinkers exist who are echoing what he is saying, and many have done the same before him. The main difference is that this indicates the actual emergence of yellow in the West. But having said all of this, we have a very big mix in the world today, and I just wanted to run through this narrative which is essentially what it is, to give you some sense of how stages of consciousness are global as well as being personal. If you don't go through changes, there may be a few reasons. One of them would be that the conditions around you are not really allowing you to change. Your world operates in a particular way and you have no choice but to work with that. Another reason, however, could be found in any resistance to change. Still, I would offer a small warning on this. The temptation in all of this, given our mimetic natures, is to simply mirror the dominant narrative or consciousness of our time, when it is also possible to transcend the order of things given in the present. Still, such transcendence is only possible on the basis of what has happened before. Key to understanding spiral dynamics is the idea that previous levels need to be in place before a leap forward can be made possible. But maybe to get a sense of how this may work for you as a person, it may help to look at how spiral dynamics may be at work in the Enneagram of personality. So in the next episode, that's what I'm going to take a look at. Some of you may not be into the Enneagram, in which case the next episode will probably make very little sense and maybe should be something that you skip over. You can always refer back to the other episodes I've recorded on the Enneagram before you move on to the next episode when it's out. But um, I will leave that up to you, of course.